Welcome again to First Alliance Church. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And I just want to give a special welcome to you this morning. If you're new with us or just checking out this church or maybe you're exploring faith in Jesus, we are so glad you're here and we hope that you feel welcomed. Uh, If you're able, would you fill out a connect card? We would love to know that you're with us and we'd love to know how we can connect with you and maybe help you along in your journey. This morning, we're diving back into a sermon series called Gospel Generosity. And this isn't a series that we do every week. It's more of an intermittent series where we have a pause in our normal order of affairs to look at the issue of generosity. As a church and as our leadership, we genuinely believe that what Jesus has to say in the area of money, possessions, and generosity is good news. It's really good news in that if we're gonna be followers of Jesus, We don't so much need to know what what we think about money. We don't so much need to embrace what our culture thinks about money. We need to know what God thinks about money and generosity. And so I'm delighted to lead us this morning uh, as we pause in Matthew chapter 6, beginning verse 19. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you, please have that open. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19 through to verse 24. And if you're Uh, new to the Bible and you don't know how to find your way in the Pew Bible, you can find us on page 787, I think, if memory serves. 787. So we're going to read the passage together and we're going to camp out on a few things and see what God has to say to us this morning, okay? So Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. And I will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. And this is really partway through a long sermon that Jesus is giving known as the Sermon on the Mount. So in verse 19, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, Or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This is the word of the Lord to us. Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and that you would cause these words which you inspired Matthew to write, which we have now heard, to land in our hearts and minds as never before and more than anything We ask that you would bring us into an encounter with the crucified and risen Lord Jesus and that what he says to us in these moments would profoundly transform and inform us and our lives. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name, amen. As we journey this morning through this passage, we're gonna consider three things. We're gonna consider love, we're gonna consider outlook and loyalty. Love, outlook, and loyalty. A Sunday school teacher once asked 
his Sunday school class, who wants to go to heaven? And uh, not surprisingly, you know, the kid's hands shot up. But it was interesting that one of the kids didn't put his hand up, a boy named Billy. Billy was kind of sitting in his chair, and he was looking a bit conflicted. And so the teacher asked him, hey, Billy, don't you want to go to heaven? Well, I guess I do, he said. Then why didn't you put up your hand? And he said, because my mom made chocolate cake for dessert tonight, and I was really hoping to have some. And I think you and I can relate to Billy's crisis. That somehow we can fear that that following Jesus and and seeking heaven is going to mean missing out on the party, right? And Jesus is pretty clear here as, as he's talking about the kingdom of God and what it looks like and what it values and what it looks like to live in the kingdom, that if we want to follow him, uh, our hearts need to be set on the right thing. Our hearts, in a sense, need to be set on the right party, that we're aimed in the right direction. Look at verse 21. This, this is a profound statement. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus doesn't hesitate to just take us right to the heart of the matter. And the heart is our heart. The issue of generosity and how we handle money and wealth is a matter of our hearts and it shows what our heart is really set on. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where things don't last, right? Everything here falls apart. Um, those of us who are young, we, we might have a hard time understanding this, but those of us who are a bit older in life, we, we've seen, we've experienced how things on earth don't last, especially if you have an American-made car. Rust in Canada, it destroys. Things on earth don't last, right? Whether it's um, nature, right? The moth that he talks about eating away at your woolen clothes, or it's time, rust, eating away at things, or if it's people stealing what it is that you have, things aren't going to last. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's really doing us a favor. He's like, if your love is set on things on earth, you're going to be let down. You're going to be let down. So what does he say instead? Do store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Why? Because there's permanence. Heaven is where there is uh, no moth uh, to destroy, no rust to eat away, no thieves to steal. What I want us to think about in here is that Jesus is making a profound statement about you and I and what we were made to be. Jesus in, in, in telling us, listen, this is where you need to store up your treasure. This is where you need to aim your love. He's saying you were made for permanence. Y- you were somehow made for more than what you've yet experienced in life. I think we can all relate to feeling like there, there's got to be more to life than this, right? There's got to be more to life than what I've yet experienced. We were made for something more permanent, more beautiful, more significant 
more real than anything we've yet experienced, right? You have a hunger for significance. You have a hunger to be, to be noticed. You have a desire for connection and meaning and, and finding your place and experiencing abundance. And what Jesus is subtly doing here is he's saying, God gave you those desires and you were made for that. You were made for this kind of permanence. And in telling us to aim at heaven rather than earth, um, Jesus isn't like despising the things of earth or he's not saying that everything on earth is bad. He's just putting things in their proper place. Because there are beautiful things on earth. There are things uh, that, that have beauty, that have truth, that have goodness. And these things are good. They are gifts to us. And to a certain degree, they resonate in us because they point to the greater reality of heaven. I love how C.S. Lewis puts this. He says that these things that have beauty and goodness, they're like a scent of a flower we haven't found. They're the echo of a tune we haven't heard. They're news from a country we've never visited. It's somehow it's familiar. Isn't that beautiful? And in telling us to, to aim our love and to um, seek heaven rather than earth, Jesus is not being a killjoy. He's not trying to take our cake. He's telling us where to find real joy. Heaven is the real party. Of course, it all depends on what you mean by heaven. Most people today, when we say the word heaven, we have this inheritance from uh, art in the Middle Ages that portrays heaven as this cloudy, wispy place where there's naked babies flying around with harps, and it's like a never-ending church service. And if that's heaven, I might take the cake over that. That's not heaven. Heaven is all of creation, redeemed and renewed. Heaven is the resurrection reality where everything that is wrong in the world has been done away with. And listen up, people of God, in Jesus, heaven has broken into the present moment. That's what Jesus is saying when he's bringing the kingdom of heaven. The, the kingdom of heaven comes in embryonic form among us, the people filled with the spirit of God. And the question for us now is to begin to live for heaven now and anticipating the reality of heaven now. That's the real party. And we get to live lives of anticipation of that party. So he says, do store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Well, what is, exactly does that mean? Like, how do we do that now? We took our kids to a fall fair last week and they had all kinds of uh, stations of activities that our kids could do. So the classic stuff, apple bobbing, uh, picking lollies out of a pumpkin, that kind of thing. And how it worked is, is your kids go to a station and if they complete the task well, like they, they get the apple, um, they, they knock down all the bowling pins, they get a ticket. And so this room is full of all these people uh, hoarding up tickets <laughs> Right? 
And then what you do at, at, later on is you go upstairs and there's a prize table and it's just like laid out with all kinds of stuff, Paw Patrol, you know, what have you. And they get to, to, to buy uh, these things with the tickets. Now we're trying to work on the issue of covetousness in our own kids and not just wanting everything. So that was a real challenge to push through. Um, but I think often when it comes to treasures in heaven, we, we can have that kind of notion um, that we're like, right now we need to be doing those activities good. We need to be doing good things, getting tickets, scoring up points so that later when we go upstairs to heaven, we get to cash in. Like, I, and I'm going to do my, my good stuff here and man, I'm going to be loaded in heaven. It's going to be awesome. And there are so many problems with what I just said. But the biggest one is that it's still all about you in that mentality, right? It's about me, and it's about getting stuff for me. It's a form of self-worship, and I don't think in heaven we're going to have a thought for ourselves. I think there's going to be one all-consuming thought, and it's going to be the glory of God in our midst. But sometimes we think that way. Jesus isn't talking about what you need to do now and what you will get later for those deeds. It's not a transaction. He's talking about a direction. He's talking about our aim. Notice the word where. Repeated five times in these three verses. Where, 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 where. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. He's talking about the direction. So the question comes to us, where, where is our love aimed? Where is your love aimed? Is it aimed at heaven and the things of heaven, or is it aimed at earth? How are you going to know? Jesus says you'll know by what you treasure. What do you hold as supremely valuable? That's an unsettling truth, isn't it? <laughs> that our treasures expose what we love. And Jesus is well aware that there are more things than money we can treasure. We can treasure success. We can treasure power. We can treasure sex. We can treasure getting noticed. We can treasure comfort. That's a big one, I think, in our culture. We can treasure being entertained. There's no end of things that, that I can give my love to. Money included. But here's the thing. Money and wealth are this clear measurement, right? Because they include all the other things. Because money is the way to most of the other things that we can treasure. Or at least it comes so alongside as a way to get that thing. And so the easiest way to tell if your love is aimed in the right direction if your love is really given to Jesus, is, is just look at what you do with your money. Look at what you do with your money. And I'm sure if you've been in church for a while, you've heard preachers say this many times. But when was the last time you did? When was the last time you looked at what you do with your money? Because nothing so clearly gauges a person's relationship with God as they're dealing with money and possessions. Generosity is about our love and about where our hearts are aimed and it's also about our outlook look at verses 23 or 22 and 23 
Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is healthy or, or clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. You know, as a preacher, I really appreciate when Jesus gives his own sermon illustration. Because then I don't have to come up with one. But the question remains, what does Jesus mean here? Right? He's, he's talking about two different kinds of eye. He's, he's talking about a healthy eye or a good eye and, and a bad eye. And these are words with implied meaning. Some of your Bibles will have a little footnote. And it will say, the word used for healthy implies generosity. And that the word used for bad implies stinginess. That's a really helpful footnote to have. Jesus is talking about a healthy eye versus a greedy or a stingy eye. But what do our eyes have to do with it? You know, when I was a kid, I loved going to Quebec City to visit my grandparents, and I loved driving anywhere with my grandfather. It just brings back all these great memories. And I would sit in the front passenger seat, and my grandfather had two really interesting things stuck on his dashboard. The first thing was a, a compass. It was one of those little balls sitting in water so you could tell what direction you were going. In the days before Google Maps and you know, digital compasses in your cars, that was awesome. The second thing he had was a, 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 a holder for sunglasses. And in that holder for sunglasses, there was a pair of AmberVision Aviator sunglasses. AmberVision. And I remember taking those sunglasses and putting them on my face, and they were way too big for my face, but I had to kind of hold them there. And what AmberVision is, it's like this beautiful yellow lens. And when you look through that yellow lens, it could be the dreariest, cloudiest, rainiest day ever, and, and it's like it's sunny outside. It's beautiful, right? And, and when you're wearing AmberVision, you just feel happy, okay? There's AmberVision. What Jesus is saying is that the issue of, of generosity uh, or stinginess, the issue of our eye, eyes is like having a different pair of glasses. Stinginess is like a pair of glasses that you put on through which you see the world and it actually starts to affect every part of your life. Sa same with generosity. Generosity is like a set of glasses that you put on and it will affect every part of your life. That's the point, right? He says if, you're, if your eye is generous, your whole body will be full of light, right? And what this is telling us is that generosity just isn't just like one isolated part of my life, you know, put into a Tupperware con container and put on the shelf way over there that doesn't touch any part, other part of my life. This will affect your relationships. This will affect your work. This will affect your thoughts, your words. This will affect the way you respond to people in your conversations with them. If your outlook is generous, your life will be full of light and you're gonna see clearly. If your outlook is stingy, your whole life is gonna be full of darkness. You're gonna see things in shadows and distortion. That's what greed does. It distorts the way you see the world, right? Everything is coming at you through a warped lens. Every person you meet, 
And every conversation you have is a chance to calculate and scheme. What can I gain from this? You're always playing an angle where every moment is full of anxious concern about shoring up more so that you remain secure in your position. Proverbs 23 talks about how stinginess uh, can very tangibly affect your relationships. Proverbs 23, 6 says, Don't eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Don't desire his delicacies. Why? Why not eat the bread of a man who is stingy? For he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. Why? He grudges you every bite. Every bite you take is eating into his wealth and is a threat to his security. This issue of of generosity and stinginess is of utmost importance for the entirety of our lives. William Barclay comments that there's nothing like generosity for giving you a clear and undistorted view of life and of people, and there's nothing like a grudging and ungenerous spirit for distorting your view of life and of people. But I want us to dig a little bit deeper. I want us to consider the basic assumption behind these two outlooks. Um, And here we're talking worldview level stuff, how you see the world, not necessarily in your conscious thought, but the way that you've assumed the world is. The basic view of the world behind stinginess is this. There's not enough. There is not enough in the world. God hasn't blessed the world to have everything we need. The stingy eye reflects the belief that scarcity is the basic story of the world. There's not enough to go around, and so I need to go out and get my own and hold on to my own at whatever cost. The stingy person sees the world fundamentally as a place of scarcity. And here's the thing. Scarcity is real. Some of us in the room have known scarcity. Maybe you've come out of a situation of conflict Maybe you've known what it means to to not have enough food or water or have your basic needs met. Maybe you're new to Canada and you're here and you're just trying to put your life together and figure out how to move and be in this weird city called Toronto. Scarcity is real. But scarcity is not the basic story of the world as God made it to be. God made the world, the opening pages of the Bible tells us, to be full and teeming of life. Animals uh, on the land and in the air and in the sea, all kinds of creatures, all kinds of fruit trees, plants, shrubs. And when God made the world, he just packed it full of life and abundance. The opening pages of the Bible tell us a story about God's abundance and generosity. And scarcity, it turns out, wasn't brought into the world by God. It was brought into the world by humans. It was brought into the world by humans who refused to trust in God's goodness. Scarcity points us to the fall. What happened in Genesis 3. 
And when we see scarcity in the world, when we experience it in our lives, it's a reminder to us that our world is deeply broken and that we are deeply broken. Because there is enough to go around. The world is packed with God's abundance. But here's why scarcity exists. Because there are 7 billion people on the planet who have bought the lie of scarcity. You have 7 billion people on the planet believing the lie that God can't be trusted, that God isn't good, and so I've got to get mine at the expense of you and yours. There are 7 billion people doing exactly what Jesus is telling us not to do. Do not hoard up treasures on earth. Scarcity exists because of human selfishness. And so here we have Jesus coming and talking about the kingdom of heaven and talking about a way of life that is completely ridiculous, about giving things away, about loving your enemy, of not trying to give your own, but trusting yourself to God. Jesus is bringing abundance back to earth, or rather he's bringing us into the reality of the abundance that is there that we are so often blind to. And here's the way he's doing it. The problem isn't a lack of abundance. The problem is us. The problem is our sinful hearts. And that's what Jesus comes to deal with. He's here to set you and I free from the sin and selfishness that keeps us enslaved to our fears. And he's doing it by forgiving our sin, breaking its power, and showing us in the most unmistakable terms that God is good. And that God can be trusted. That's what Jesus does to bring us into abundance. And as he builds our faith, he wants us to be free of the lie of scarcity. He wants us to be able to see the world with that outlook of generosity, to assume that it is a place of abundance where God is pouring out gift upon gift on a daily basis. Is that how you see the world? Or do you see it through the lens of scarcity? This issue of generosity is about our love. It's about our outlook. It's also about our loyalty. Look at verse 24. This verse tells us two important truths about money and our relationship to it. First, that money is a power. Money is a power, right? Money isn't just uh, coins or paper or plastic. And, and frankly, in a digital age, I'm not sure what money is anymore. It's just kind of out there in the air. One uh, economist defines money as a unit of power. I think he's getting close to the truth. And in his day, Jesus saw that. He saw it clearly. He calls it mammon. Behind what most of our Bibles translate wealth or money in this verse is the word mammon. And in Hebrew, it just means wealth or money. But by Jesus' day, it had taken on the meaning of a god. That mammon was this god, this object of worship. And so what Jesus is saying here is that generosity is actually a question of our loyalty and of our allegiance. Who has our loyalty? Who are we loyal to? Who are we giving our worship to? Who are we serve, serving? 
Money is a power. Secondly, this verse tells us that loyalty can't be divided. The verse begins and ends in the same way, and and here's how it begins and ends. It's impossible. It's impossible to serve two masters, and it's impossible to serve both God and money. That's the emphasis. Impossible, impossible. You can't do it. Sometimes we think we can. Right? Sometimes we, we think that oh, I'm the exception of the rule, but when God says something is possible, we dare not say, no, it is possible, God. Watch me go and serve two masters. He's like, no. Because if we have a divided loyalty, it's not loyalty at all. It's disloyalty. And what, what Jesus is doing in this teaching, he's bringing a very challenging call to us, isn't he? It's a challenging call to single-minded loyalty to him. And we can't really soften that. I I can't explain our way around that. I, I actually want every one of us to hear that. Where is your loyalty? And he's already given us the tools, the diagnostic tool to tell. What do you do with your money? What do you treasure? So what now? I just want to say, friends, this is really good for us. This is really good for us to think about and and to, and if you have held the door closed on the matter of your finances on Jesus, it's really good for you to open it up and let him in. Because this is about what we love and what we worship. And let's face it, as we move about in our culture, we are in constant danger of being colonized. We are in constant danger of being colonized by the values of our culture and the God of money. Do you know that? Do you know that the values of the kingdom of heaven are completely upside down from the values of the kingdom of the world? And as we live in the kingdom of the world and interact with it, we're in constant danger of being colonized. We need a detox, right? We need... We need our minds renewed. We need our hearts renewed on this matter because what Jesus says is so clear, right? Like, I didn't even have to preach this morning. We could have just read that scripture and gone, okay, here it is. It's clear. But what scares me is that I know what Jesus teaches, but I see greed and stinginess in myself on a daily basis. That's what's so scary about this. So how are we going to be a people that are aimed at heaven? How are we going to be people with generous eyes? How are we going to remain loyal to God in in an issue that we are so vulnerable in? I want to suggest two ways. The first is give. The scriptures see giving not as like an eye-rolling, compulsory thing to do. The scriptures see giving as a gift. The scriptures see giving as a gift. And you might think, wow, that's, that's a bold statement. What do you mean? I mean, the act of giving is actually part of the answer of how our love gets aimed at heaven and how we become generous. And this is why. When you give... That act is breaking the power of money in your life. Because what money wants you to do is hoard, 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 and store it up. 
And when you give, you are running against the grain. And you are disarming the power that money seeks to have over you. That's how giving is a gift, right? The, the giving is like this medicine for my greedy, stingy soul, right? That's what Jesus tells a man in Matthew 19 who, who is clearly in the clutches of mammon. This guy had come to him, this guy who was fabulously rich, who was fabulously handsome, he was young, had his whole life ahead of him, and Jesus told him, if you want to be complete, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. This is the closest Jesus comes to actually telling us, hey guys, here's how you get treasure in heaven, it's giving to the poor. And I could pepper you with more proof texts from the New Testament that talk about how giving is a gift and that encourage God's people to give. But because we want to come to the table, I won't. But just know, giving is a gift because it forms us as generous people and it breaks the power of money over us. How much do you have to give? Just make sure you give enough to be sure that money does not have its claws in your heart. Make sure you give enough to be sure that money does not have its grip on you. And more besides, as God enables you. But here's the thing. What I've just said about giving, at best, that's good advice, right? And at worst, that's legalism. But let's be honest, we need good news. We need gospel, (laughs) Because giving in the Bible isn't about legalism or rules. It's not a box to check off. It's a response. It's a response to the first giver. It's a response to the great giver. It's the response to the one who's given you life and everything that you are and have. Believe it or not, we are not self-made people. I didn't choose where I would be born. I didn't choose the family I would be born into. Everything we have comes to us as gift, creation. It's good news. But even more than that, after God gave you everything, after God gave you and I everything, and after we had turned away from him, he redeemed us. He redeemed us. And what's really going to change us from the inside out on this matter and transform our lives is when we see Jesus, God's own son, giving his life for us. He didn't, give, he didn't give a tithe of his life. He didn't give a tithe of his body or a tithe of his blood. He gave it all. When we deserve to be left on the outside of the party, He gave everything to bring us in. And friends, it's to the degree that we see Jesus giving himself to us. It's to the degree degree that you see Jesus giving himself to you and you receive his gift. You treasure his gift. That's the degree to which the Spirit is going to form his generous love. And the Spirit is going to form his generous outlook and his unwavering loyalty to the Father in us. We need to see Jesus clearly giving himself for us. And then respond. Respond with lives lived in gratitude. This is what we need to see. 
And this is what the Apostle Paul assumes we know as Christians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. It's the invitation to us as we come to the table now that we would see Jesus giving his life for us and that this good news would transform us. I want to invite those serving communion to come forward as we prepare for the table of the Lord.